I love the four values that we have and um, and and even the sequencing speaks, right? There's parts of it that both represent who we are now and then there's an aspirational element to each of the words also. So rooted in scripture, it's foundational and yet it's something you never graduate from that academy of right, really exploring the fullness of the lessons that can be taught there. Community. Uh, the way that we framed community as a value, as a core value, is the way that we show up with one another. So, you know, being open and transparent and honest and real about our need for Jesus in community with one another. Practice, so rooted in practice, this recognition that it's, you know, a journey or a process, um, this formation experience that we're on. Uh, and then hope. Uh, being rooted in hope and the confidence that we get from uh, knowing that Jesus is the last word on all things and the buoyancy that that gives us um, as believers. I think that um, it does both seem to me anyway. Uh, it gives me a lot of joy, actually, the, the values in particular as we look at the vision frame, because I think it speaks to where we are. And like I said, from an aspirational lens, um, I think it also it's inspiring to think about how we could even grow in each one of those ways. Well, hey everybody, good morning, good to see you. Uh, my name is Stephen, I have the pleasure of uh, leading the staff and the session here. Super grateful for each of them. And uh, you know, this morning we, uh, as Amber mentioned, we're gonna be turning the corner to take a look at our values. What are those things that characterize our life as a community? What is the heartbeat of who we are at All Souls as we are seeking to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And so with that in mind, if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open them up. I'm going to invite Laura Jean to uh, come on up because the way that we know Jesus is first and foremost through the scriptures. This morning we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 4 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit that we would hear these words written long ago, not just as words on a page, but as your word to us, that through them we may encounter your Spirit and be transformed. We pray this in the name of the one who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Timothy was the spiritual son of the Apostle Paul. His mother was Jewish, and so he would have been brought up in the story of God's covenant with God's people. And the way that God has revealed himself in the world through them in other words, he was shaped by the story of God and the world as told through Scripture. 
Fast forward, you know, roughly 2,000 years and followers of Jesus now, we may have a sense that, that this Bible, this book that we read is somehow different from other things that we read. Uh, maybe even that it has an authority or a claim over our lives in some way. But what do we really mean when we say that it's holy? When we say that it is inspired or when we respond after we read by saying this is the word of the Lord? What exactly is the Bible? Well, there are a lot of ways that the church has tried to answer that question throughout the centuries. Uh, the Westminster Confession, the 17th century document, calls the Old and the New Testaments the Word of God written, inspired by God, and the rule for faith and life. I think another way of saying that is that it is a collection of writings, both divine and human, that tells the true story of God's grace in Jesus and how we can live humbly and responsively within that story out in the world. Uh, let me break that down real quickly before we move on. The, the Bible is actually not a single book. Uh, and I know that's confusing because it's bound like a book, right? But it's actually a collection of writings assembled over uh, generations. And a better way of describing it would be to call it a library of different kinds of literature. Uh, the Bible contains multiple genres. It has poetry and narrative. It has didactic, teaching, apocalyptic. It has letters in it. And so the question that often gets asked is, do I read this literally, is actually less helpful than the question, what genre of scripture am I reading? You read each genre on its own terms, right? Uh, you wouldn't read, for instance, a science textbook the way that you would read one of Shakespeare's plays. You wouldn't read a love letter the way that you read a legal document. At least I hope not. But question is, why would God inspire these multiple genres? Uh, well, I think part of it is because life is complex, right? Uh, it's hard to kind of like put the fullness of life into one single category, much less the fullness of God. So it is both divine and human in origin. Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. The word he uses is theonustos. It appears to be this word that Paul coined to describe the process of the Spirit giving life to the scriptures, similar to the way that God breathed life into Adam. And, and, and the point is that the Bible is not something that the authors just kind of made up. It had an origin beyond them. And yet, at the same time, it is unmistakably human writing. It bears the marks of its author's personality. It's written in human language. And it, like all language, it's shaped by culture. It's shaped by categories of thought. God uses human language and ideas to communicate to humans. Because the God of the Bible is in the habit of taking on flesh. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project uses this drawing, uh, maybe a familiar one that we have seen, to kind of illustrate the paradox of its divine and human origin. Any M.C. Escher fans out there? Got one. All right. Well, I'll let him know. Uh, which hand is drawing which? All right, it's both. 
you know, you, you, you can't separate the two. To erase the one would be to have an incomplete picture. God uses human languages and human writers to communicate to God's people, to self-disclose within history. So it is this collection of writings, both divine and human, that tell the true story of God's grace in Jesus. Somehow, in spite of all of the multiple authors, in spite of the generations over which this was written, the books within Scripture tell a unified story of who God is and what God desires for all of creation to flourish and ultimately what God is like in the person of Jesus. So if that's what the Bible is, it kind of begs the next question, then what is it for? What role does the Bible play in the kingdom of God, in the community of faith? What do we mean when we say we're rooted in Scripture? When we open and we read our Bibles, whether we do that by ourselves or whether we do that in community, what is it supposed to do inside you and inside me to help us live humbly and responsibly within the story out in the world? And does it really matter? Well, three things on that. First, we read the Bible to know who God is, to know who we are, and how to engage each other. The Bible is a story. It begins with, in the beginning, God. And so first and foremost, it is a story about God. Secondarily, it's a story about you and me. And that means it's not primarily about, you know, principles for sound living, uh, how to run your business well, how to have, you know, a, a great family and kids who say please and thank you, as great as all that stuff is. It's not about how to unlock the secrets of divine blessing. Now, a lot of these things have actually come from people reflecting uh, the cumulative wisdom of people looking at these scriptures, pouring over them for millennia. But the vast majority of Western culture, as a matter of fact, whether that's the arts or our concept of human rights, uh, of justice, uh, all of that stuff would be unintelligible without the story that scripture tells. So if the Bible is the true story, then God is at the center of this story. It's God's self-disclosure. The theological term for that is divine revelation. God is revealing to us through human writers who God is and who God is not. And I gotta tell you, we need that more than ever because there is a lot of bad information out there about who God is. It's not just outside of the church, but inside the church as well. In the words of Eugene Peterson, God and his ways are not what most of us think. Most of what we are told by God, uh, about God and his ways by our friends on the street, uh, who are his friends on the street? Um, or read about him in papers, or view on television, or think up on our own is simply wrong. Maybe not dead wrong, but wrong enough to mess up the way we live. And this book is precisely a revelation, a revealing of what we could never figure out on our own. So what does that matter? Well, it matters because we move toward whatever images of God we have, whatever story about God we believe, we become what we worship. We see this in the Taliban leader who forces young girls to marry soldiers. 
We see it in the celebrity pastor with $3,000 kicks getting out of Kanye's jet. We see it in the street corner preacher or in the Twitter firebrand who happens to go on about how God hates all the same people that they do. But we also see it in the convert to Catholicism who gives up everything to help and live with the urban poor in New York City. We see it in the business leader who doesn't measure the bottom line by how much money he's bringing in, but by how well his workers are cared for, how they have a living wage or not. Do they have access to health care and to quality education? What we believe about God matters. The story we live in is the story we live out. And so we come to Scripture to have the true story, to let it tell us who God is so that we can live out that story deeply and well. It's the primary source that tells us what God is like and how God operates in this world. But it's also the story about us. It starts with God, but then a paragraph later, we come on the scene. And John Calvin believed that knowledge of God and knowledge of self are linked. We come to know who we are only in light of who God is. And so we see in the story of Scripture that you have value and beauty and and dignity, that you are full of, of grace, but yet you are also broken, full of disordered loves, bent towards self-destruction, and yet in spite of all of that, you are loved, a cherished possession, the God who made you is chasing after you. That's who you are, beloved. The Bible's mostly narrative. Mostly it tells a story. There's a lot in there about what to do. There's a lot in there about what not to do, but it's largely a story about God and about people and what they did together. N.T. Wright says that this is because story is the best way of talking about the world as it really is. I love that. And that means that the Bible, while it contains laws, is not primarily a book of laws. While it is richly theological, it is not a systematic theology textbook. While it has a moral vision, it's not a nice, you know, cute collection of moral stories. The people's lives are, are complicated. You know, it's not live this way, don't live that way. The stories don't have this neat little bow on them. Some of them are pretty gnarly. King David, beloved of God loves God deeply. In his story, you'll find bravery and heroism, but you'll also find hard years of depression, living in a cave, adultery, murder, repentance, a broken family tree, a shattered kingdom, pain, bitterness. It's messy. It's complicated. It's life. It's all out there. The Bible is not trying to hide or cover over the complexity of the human condition. And I think so often we do ourselves a disservice when we see in the Bible characters, in these, in these lives that they are living, and we put distance between them and our own lives because we don't look at their experience of life the way that we experience life. That was Jacob. That was Hannah. That's not me. But as we immerse ourselves in the story and see that the ways that they interacted with God, we, we, cern, we, we find out pretty soon that 
That's our story as well. Good, bad, otherwise. Well, that's in a story about a brother who is jealous or a woman who wants nothing more than to be a mother. We come to the Bible to encounter the true story about who God is and about how, who we are and how we relate to each other. Second, we come to the Bible to tell the true story about reality. Uh, the Bible unfolds mostly through story. As I've said, it's this sprawling, long, epic story. But in spite of all that, it is a unified story told through a particular people, the people of Israel. God does something special through this nation, this people that he has chosen as kind of a sign of what God intends to do for all people and all nations. And here's why that matters. Because all of us are living out a story Missiologist Leslie Newbigin writes that the way that we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? That is the question which determines what we believe to be success and what failure. We all have some narrative about the meaning of life, where we find our purpose, where we find meaning and joy. And like I said last week, that, that has everything to do with how we're going to live out the world. Even in the late, you know, kind of modern post-Christian world, there is a story. If the story of secularism is true, if there's no more to us than the material, if these bodies are all that they are, that we are just an animal with time and chance on our side, someone who hit the DNA lottery, that we are just a byproduct of genetic sequencing or whatever, if, if love is a myth, it's just neurochemicals you know, going off in your brain, and then there's, 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 there's no reason to keep on going except for you know, eating and, and drinking and sex and the next Marvel movie that's coming out or, or whatever. And then when you die, that's it. Roll the music, fade to black. If that's the story that you live by, and a lot of people live by that story, you're going to view these last 18 months in a very particular way. You're going to view the future in a very particular way. But if you're not simply here as a result of blind genetic mutation over time, but there's a creator whose image you bear, and you are part of creation that was made to flourish, that there's this arc to human history that describes its promise and its brokenness, and that story is your story. And you see echoes of that story played out in ordinary acts of, of grace. You see the brokenness of that story played out in acts of callous neglect. But you were made to love. You were made by love. You were made for love. And you were made to partner with this creator to enter into the story to reconcile and renew all things. If that is your story, then you're going to view the world really differently. That's a story that's going to move you forward. We live in a story-saturated world whether that's the mechanisms of the political right and left telling you what is wrong and what is right with the world, whether that's the story of consumerism that tells you that your kids are going to be sweet and well-behaved and they're always going to get dressed on time and they're never going to spill Cheerios in the backseat of the car if you buy that new minivan, and then your spouse is going to look at you lovingly because you're the person who bought the minivan. Right? If that's the story, it's going to act, cause you to act in a certain way. 
Maybe the most pervasive story out there is that you have no story. It's up to you. And to all of these, the Bible is an alternative story that subverts and uproots all of the other ones that are out there, all of the cultural narratives about who we are, because it captures reality as it is. That said, the world that we enter into in the Bible is a strange one, and so it's also an exercise in imagination. As you read, in particular, those of us who are coming from kind of the the, the closed view of the secular West. You step into a story where God is not only powerful and real, but God is, is present and, and involved. And it's a story where shepherds become kings, where prostitutes become you know, evangelists. It's a story where evil and darkness are real and at work in the world, but where even they will be made to yield to hope and to life. In other words, it's an invitation to rethink reality from the ground up. But it's also an exercise in participation. To hear and immerse yourself in this world and to carry this world forward. Because here's the thing, a good story is not just something that you read. It's something that you want to enter into. Uh, How many of you remember the very first movie that you saw when you were a kid in the theater? Mine was E.T. Anybody else E.T.? Yeah. I loved E.T. I mean, I would ride my bike all the time waiting for it to lift off. I still love Reese's Pieces like no other. That's what a good story does. It draws you in. It, it, It pulls you into the story. N.T. Wright gives this analogy that he describes the drama of Scripture as a five-act play. In, in Act 1, it's creation. It's the story about God and humanity, a world that exists in a state of flourishing, a state of shalom. Humans begin their work out in the garden. And then in Act 2, conflict is introduced. Uh, there is this enemy to God's plan. Shalom is violated. In Act 3, God chooses a people, Israel, leads them out of bondage into a place of flourishing as a sign and a foretaste of what God wants to do to all of creation. And then they reject God. And there's exile. In Act 4, the story of God's grace to his people comes to a climax in the death, in the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And then in the New Testament, we see the story of the church We see just the first scene of this final act, the people of Jesus working out the implications of what God's restoration in Jesus looks like. And Wright goes on to say that as the people of Jesus, we enter in here in Act 5. There's a huge chunk of the script missing. We know what comes before. We know where the story is heading. And so the way that we enter into the play is to improvise. And we don't just make things up. We improvise in a way that makes sense of what came before in the story and where the story is going. We come into the story, and in the doing, we learn who we really are. So we are rooted in Scripture to know who God is and who we are and how we relate to each other in light of who God is. We come to Scripture, secondly, to learn the true story of reality, and last, we come to be shaped in the image of Jesus so that we can join in what God is doing.
This is a story that actually calls us to join in. And this is the most important thing. If we're going to participate in the renewal of all things, that means we need to become a certain kind of people. We need to be shaped in a particular way. We need to be shaped like Jesus. When we read the Bible, we do not come to it, you know, just for information. We come to it for formation. We come to be shaped into a particular kind of person. I love how James K.A. Smith describes it. He says, we are called to be characters in this story, to play the role of God's image bearers who care for and cultivate God's creation to the praise of his glory. To learn this role is to become what we were made to be. It's not play acting. It's not pretending. It is the role we were born to play. In becoming these characters, we become ourselves. And so our formation is not measured by how much we know about the Bible. It's not even measured by how often we read the Bible. It is measured by how well we allow ourselves to be shaped by the Spirit so that we look like Jesus, so we can be more of who we truly are. Truth is, you can read the Bible a ton. You can know it forwards and backwards and still be a jerk to your coworkers, still be a tyrant to your family. We have all experienced that. You can be incredibly knowledgeable about the Bible and incredibly immature at the same time. As Mike said, it's not too late to sign up for emotionally healthy spirituality. I came across this Instagram post last night and it was too good not to find a way to put it in. Jackie Hill Perry writes, pray for the bullies. The so-called Christian ones whose platforms thrive only when they have an enemy of some sort. She's just calling it out. You can be incredibly gifted, talented, sharp, quick-witted. You can have a Bible that is worn from cover to cover and look absolutely nothing like the Jesus inside the Bible. We read to encounter the living God, to be shaped like Jesus. It is not enough to read the Bible. You have to let the Bible read you. It shapes you to be a particular kind of person. It's not an object we control, but by the power of the Spirit, we become a subject that it shapes. It's not just believing it, it's living it. Struck by something that Sister Helen Prejean wrote, if you ever saw the movie Dead Man Walking, you know her story. She wrote, belief and faith are not just words. It's one thing for me to say I'm a Christian, but I have to embody what it means. I have to live it. So I keep watching what I do to see what I actually believe. That's what Paul is getting at with Timothy. Verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful, right? It's useful. So that answers the question, why do we read it? It's useful. What's it useful for? Well, he goes on for teaching, for saying this is how to follow Jesus, for rebuke. That's not how we follow Jesus. For correction, for training in righteousness. Here, that was good. Keep, keep going. Or here, maybe try this instead. But here's the point, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
The point of reading scripture well is to be shaped into the kind of person who can join in the work that God is doing, that Jesus is already doing in the world. We read because the Bible is the means by which God, through his spirit, is doing his thing, shaping this new community who's going to participate in the renewal of all things. And we do this in community in, in with other people who are also being shaped like Jesus so that we can, you know, they can put a check on the assumptions and the biases that we have to our reading. We do this in, in community so that we, you know, don't put ourselves above the story. We do this in conversation with other practices in the life of Jesus. Things like prayer and fasting and, and proclaiming the gospel to others and and, and acts of justice and mercy and sharing the gospel and contemplation and living generously and living simply and, and so on. We do it because it's the true story that orients us to hope. And this matters because there are all kinds of other things that are clamoring for our attention. There are all other stories that are shaping us. Whether it's the false stories that we believe about ourselves, about the world. Whether it's our habits, the things that we do. The ways that we spend, you know, our time endlessly kind of doom scrolling the news or, 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 or shopping or comparing ourselves online to other people. All of these things shape us into a particular kind of person. The relationships we have, the people we surround ourselves with. And our environment, Decatur, Atlanta, I mean, this place is a formation machine. So many good breweries. So much good about it. So much brokenness. We shape and are being shaped by our culture wherever we go. And all that stuff causes us to approach the world differently. I was talking to a student from here a couple days ago, and I'm getting ready to go visit my, my, my family and friends later on this afternoon back in Newport Beach. And you know, I was saying that before we moved out to Newport Beach, my, my prayer and my conversation with Jill is like, I don't want this place to change me. I don't want all of the allure of the wealth to change me. But, you know, honestly, like, you can only see so many Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Bugattis and Bentleys, like, every single day out there on PCH. All the dealerships right there. All the people driving around. I mean, you can only see so many of those things for so long before you start to imagine the kind of life you would have if you were behind the wheel. I have, I have a friend who gave me a custom-made, tailor-made, you know, Italian suit. Just gave it to me. Do you know how nice an Italian custom-made suit is? Do you know how good it feels? Do you know how good you look in it? I do. Thank God you guys don't make me wear a suit. You start to care about things that you didn't care about before. And we like to think that, you know, you know, in our own minds that we are influencers, not influenced by things, but you start to become colonized by the culture that's around you. It just happens. And so the scriptures are counterformation. They're one of the ways that we consciously partner with the Spirit to be shaped in the image of Jesus and his kingdom instead of just, you know, letting whatever disciplinary mechanisms of our culture uh, be it Apple TV or, or, or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, have its way with you. We go here to find the true story of the world so that we can read the world through it. You know, if you just let the, the, 
inertia of of things take their course with you, then in about you know one or five or ten years, you're going to become a, a different kind of person. Uh, you may not even recognize that person after a while. Um, you could like that person, you could not like that person, but the thing that really matters is does that person look more like Jesus or less like Jesus? Because that's what we're after here. Do I love? Do I express hope with my words, with my body, with my things, the way I spend my money, with the way I do community, with the way I embody hope in my bones? Do I do it like Jesus? We come to Scripture as part of the intentional rhythm of partnering with God for the renewal of our lives. And the Scriptures are a way to filter everything through that true story. This, not that. Not consumerism, not hedonism, not materialism, but Jesus of Nazareth. We come to the Scriptures to meet God. A moment to encounter heaven coming to earth, to have in that moment open to the Spirit. And in that moment, you are shaped in a way far more profound than any other story out there. So let it be with us.